This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up, Dippo Faloyan, the journalist and author, discusses his new book, Africa is Not a Country. Dippo Faloyan is a senior editor and writer at Vice. His work for the title often focuses on issues such as identity, culture and race, seeking out the stories in which they meet and the often complex, challenging questions that can follow. He writes with a global outlook, seeking to answer some of them having been born in Chicago and grown up in Lagos, and today being based in London. His new book is Africa is Not a Country, a work that looks to dispel oversimplified narratives about one of the most richly diverse continents on the planet. Our host for this discussion is the award-winning journalist Yusra El Bagher. Here's Yusra with more. This book is, I wouldn't just say important, I would say critical. More than anything, it really felt like a labour of love. I could feel, you know, your love for Nigeria, your love for Lagos, for your family, for, for the culture as a whole and the continent as a whole. And that love really comes through so well. And it feels like it's, it's kind of the fuel that drives the book. But I, but I don't want to speak on your behalf. I just want to ask you, you know, what drove you to write this book and, and why now? Well, first of all, thank you so much for agreeing to host this. Thank you so much to Intelligence Squared for having me. This book means so much to me and I'm so thrilled that you sort of picked up on themes that really drove me to writing this book. Um, it's personal. It's about me. It's about my family. It's about our identities. You know, one word that when I think about this book and why I started the opening chapter with a sort of section about my family and who we are is that fundamentally this book is about identities and it's about who we are. Mm. And unfortunately, as many people across the continent know, Africans are not necessarily appreciated for who they individually are, what their experiences are, uh, what their history actually is, and what brought them to their present. It's far easier to lump us all together as one and assume that we will have the same shared experiences, the same knowledge, the same outcomes, the same futures, that we're helpless in changing our own personal destinies. And so what really motivated me was trying to get across the idea that this is a place of all kinds of experiences, all kinds of um, all kinds of personalities, um, all kinds of motivations. And to start with, you know, I think of my own family. You know, like many Nigerian families, we are we're big, we're wild. There are so many different personalities, so many different motivations. You know, the idea of lumping us all as a family together is absurd. Let alone doing it for mm. Nigeria, let alone doing it for Africa. And so for me, this is something that, you know, is personal to me um, and it means a lot to me. And it's something that's been on my mind uh, for a really, really long time. And something that you said was that, you know, it's coming at a time of George Floyd, of sort of a, a global racial awakening, if you like. And so I sort of felt that this was the perfect opportunity to have this conversation, mm. to, to, to bring it towards Africa and the historical way in which the continent has been treated as well as how it continues to be treated to this day. And I think that, you know, for me, it's just so essential that we have these conversations and we, we basically try our hardest to ensure that, you know, the younger generations don't continue to push the same stereotypes that have been pushed ever since the colonialists met in Berlin to try and carve up the continent. Mm. Um, you know, at some point mm. that has to stop. And when it does stop, I think that we can then start to really have serious discussions about the future of the continent and the future mm. of individual countries and how that can be how that can be progress because you know these countries are incredibly young um, and there's huge mm. opportunities 
for change and development, for you know all kinds of different avenues for every individual country to go down. And so I just think that you know until we start relating to these countries in a way that is actually based on you know what is actually going on in each individual region, a lot of that growth could potentially be stunted. And how much research? It feels incredibly well researched, and it feels like you know I I, I read a chapter and it feels like five books. I can already, I can feel five books and then you managing to kind of streamline the information and present the salient facts. What was the research phase like for you? Yeah, I mean, the research phase was extensive. You know, one thing that it, it, it's a mixture of sort of things that I've read for years and years and, you know, information I've been taking in and through my day job advice. Um, but specifically, you know, before I started writing any chapter, you know, I'd make sure I did sort of months and months of research and reading and to better understand sort of for each topic, you know, even things in which, you know, I thought I had a pretty strong grasp on, to hear as many different voices as possible from around the continent. You know, both history is it's personal to people. It's not, I didn't want this to be an academic exercise. You know, mm. I, you, you want to mix both, you know, historical information with map reading, with novels as well, because that's such a great way of capturing feeling and tone and moments. Um, so I kind of wanted mm. to bring all that together to tell a story that's accessible and understanding to people in a way that they can relate to their own experiences. You know, the best ways people have of relating to others who might have grown up in very difficult, different circumstances to them is by trying to connect certain shared histories, certain shared mm. experiences at homes. And a lot of the, a lot of the things that people consider as, you know, very specific challenges to Africa are challenges that, you know, the Western world has, has, has faced and continues to face. Mm. But the difference is that, you know, they've had hundreds of years to try and sort a lot of it out, whereas a lot of these African countries are battling with very, very short histories. So, mm. you know, I, I, I ensured that, you know, I read widely, but also kind of varied as well to hopefully create mm. something that, that feels like, you know, in some places it could feel like a novel, could feel like an academic textbook, but, you know, created both knowledge, hopefully, as well as feeling as well. I mean, you, you made a point of saying shared experiences. And I think that word is so crucial because it's shared, not same. You know, it's it's understanding the continent as obviously a place with, you know, interconnected, interwoven histories, but that each place has its distinct culture and community. And that brings me to the title of the book, because Africa is not a country has been a rallying cry for African writers, commentators for, for, for decades. And why did you choose that title? Was it, did it sort of summarize the, the fight for you? Or what was it that made you think, this is it, I've got to just do it, go straight straight to the point? Yeah, no, I think you, you absolutely nailed it there. It's been a rallying cry um, for, for the continent, for people in probably every single region. You hear it all the time, the, the way in which people speak about the continent. You know, I get pitched stories every day from, from writers who will say, which will, they'll want to publish something about a current trend in Africa but when you dig down into the story, they're really talking about maybe two countries, something that might happen in mm. two countries, but they'll say, you know, this is something that's happening across Africa. And it's like, well, that's not an African thing. You know, it might be a mm. Zambian thing. It might be a Ghanaian thing. It might be, you know, an Egyptian thing, but this, you know, that doesn't mean that it, it, it's African and mm. that's okay. You know, we accept it in every other region of the world. It's something that we should also accept when we talk about African countries. Um, that, mm. you know, there may be, you know, certain shared experiences, but there are, there are countries that have been through similar things, but they've chosen very mm. different paths. Um, and it's mm. important to understand that because there could be a third country following behind who's about to face something similar. And by understanding the different paths that those countries went down, you know, they can, they can potentially choose a better path mm. that makes sense for them and their own people. And so that is something that's, for me, that constant reminder that, that, that this is a place of 54 countries, 1.4 billion people, over 2,000 languages, you know, innumerable ethnic groups. It's a, it's a complicated place and it should be respected as such. I mean, you make the point in the book that you would never just say European as a blanket term. And honestly, when you think of lumping together France and Germany or Italy and Spain, it's just like, the, it's unheard of. Like, they're so it's completely different. unthinkable for you know, the, the whole of Europe to 
be judged based on, you know, Spain's COVID response, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we just would never do that. But it comes so easily when we talk about Africa. And that's the thing that, you know, really, really needs to, to stop. And it's also, I mean, as you say, um, there are rivalries in place. So just like the French and the Germans, you know, Nigeria and Ghana, they have their rivalries. They have their, you know, historic differences and and respecting that is understanding. Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's It's not trying to put up border walls between these countries, trying to say, you know, everyone just ignore each other and leave each other alone. It's respecting the richness of each individual nation. Um, Mm. And by doing that, you can then better understand how these countries, when they choose to intertwine and how the region was created and and gives you a sense of, you know, what could happen in the future. Mm. So I want to go through some of the the broader issues that you look at in the in the book and and look at them with you and sort of pick your brain. It's so nice to read a book and then be like, I'm actually going to speak to the author soon. So I'm going to ask him about this. But um. One of the quotes that really struck me was when you speak about modern Africa and you write that Africa was designed against its will to be a divided thing. A continent of 54 houses built on sand, poorly anchored to business deals, written using Victorian definitions of civilization. I think that metaphor, it, it hits home because it's it just the the the, the f- fluidity, but almost like the, the instable, the unstable fluidity that African statehood is is has to deal with in in general. Um, And then that metaphor is then supported by the imagery you set out of the infamous Berlin Conference of 1884 and sort of the continent being divvied up and shared amongst colonial powers. You know, what do you see as the legacy of that conference in modern Africa, particularly on issues of statehood, if if you were to sort of dissect that metaphor and and explain your reasoning behind it? Yeah, so... I think it's important to to remember that these are artificial countries. They were they were not created by the the Africans on the ground that the European colonialists met. Um, there was no continent wide agreement. There was no great big you know African conference where everyone sat down and, and and tried to make a case for their own personal communities. For for centuries before the Berlin Conference, you had large African kingdoms. You had small ethnic groups, you had nomadic groups and everything in between. What happened in 1884 was that, you know, the great European colonial powers came together and basically decided that they each wanted a chunk of this region. You know, they had, they had, they had sent explorers, people who we, who we lionized in schools into the region to, to discover, you know, what great riches were there on the ground. And each country, unsurprisingly, came back and said, this, is, this looks like a pretty great place. Um, let's see what we can take for ourselves. Um, and so the conference really set the ground rules for the scramble for Africa, for the, what is effectively a large-scale invasion of the continent. They all agreed that, firstly, they all had the right to do it. They had agreed that they were, if anything, gifting Africans the three Cs, Christianity, commerce, and civilization. There was this idea that Africans were uncivilized and the European presence would civilize them. But in reality, all the Europeans wanted was to extract as much as they could from the continent. And so what they didn't do was try and build stable countries. That wasn't in their best interest. What was in their best interest was to build things that were unstable, which meant that it would be a lot harder for those individual countries to rise up against the European powers. If you have a country that has a hundred different languages, three or four large ethnic groups who don't speak the same languages, who don't worship the same gods, whose moral compasses don't align in the same way, it becomes incredibly hard for all those individual ethnic groups to create enough cohesion to overthrow the European powers. So building these unstable countries was part of the plan so that for as long as possible, the European powers could take and extract as much as they could. You look at probably the best example is what happened with the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, which was the first nation to be created after the conference. King Leopold II of Belgium was an incredibly bored 
man who did not have any real responsibilities. He, he needed something to do. So he convinced the other colonial powers to give him a large chunk of land that was about 10 times the size of Belgium in the center of Africa. And quite quickly, King Leopold realized that running country was incredibly expensive and Belgium was spending money and they couldn't have Belgium spending money. So they put previously free Central Africans to work as slaves. And by the end of King Leopold's reign, about half the population of Central Africa had been murdered, just trying to force them to extract as much natural resources to pay off King Leopold's, basically his boredom. And the devastation is unthinkable. The lives that were lost, the communities that were destroyed, the ethnic groups that were broken up. And King Leopold never once stepped foot in Africa. He was doing this all from Belgium. And eventually, when word spread around the world of all of the atrocity, he wasn't punished, but he was eventually forced to give up the DRC. That's the birth of the DRC. And as a country, they've had to try and work it out ever since, you know, when that is the basis for your existence, it is incredibly difficult. And there are these stories all across the continent. And it's understanding that you get to understand the present state of many countries, you know, the, both the successes that they've had in navigating these incredibly difficult challenges, but also the difficulties that they've had in getting these ethnic groups to cooperate even up until now. That paints a, a far richer picture a better mosaic of, of, of what's actually happening. And when we better understand that, we can, we can work where necessary to help these countries as, you know, as a Nigerian myself, if I want to, you know, better understand Nigeria, to work to help Nigeria better face the future rather than forcing, you know, certain things constantly onto the continent. And that, and that for me is the key thing, you know, that, that's the impact that the Berlin Conference had on Africa is, is the sort of uncivilized people who could not look after themselves. A lot of that mentality has continued to today. And I think that's why it's incredibly important that we, that we work as hard as possible to, to create a different narrative. I mean, another shocking example that you lay out is, you know, how c colonial powers decided to draw the line between modern day Nigeria and Cameroon using a river that they thought was an estuary and that grows and shrinks can you talk me through it? Because I was reading it and I was in shock. And I was also shocked that I'd never been told this or taught this because it's just so fundamental to modern day West Africa to know this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. You had a lot of people drawing borders and boundaries in regions that they never visited. Um, they made just wild assumptions about different areas. And so one example is the border between Nigeria and Cameroon and the Aquafe River. Now, whether it's in river or an estuary matters because it, it expands, it, it contracts in certain times, it, it shifts. And what happens when it does shift is that the border changes. Now, what is around that border is an area called the Bakinzi Peninsula, and it is an oil-rich region. Now you have two countries and you have ethnic groups in that region. There's oil there, the border keeps changing, both countries want that oil. Ethnic groups want control of that oil. They want their own ethnic groups to enjoy the splendors of that oil. What comes next? Naturally, it's conflict. These are the conflicts that were created by pretend borders being drawn, by not understanding what was going on on the ground. And there has been conflict between Nigeria and Cameroon because of, of a border that neither countries had anything to do with. Across the world, about 30% of the world's borders are in Africa but over 60% of disputes that have been taken to the international, international courts um, over borders have come from the continent. Because in many cases, a lot of countries don't know where their borders begin and end. You know, there are rough borders drawn into mountains because on the ground, a lot of the explorers didn't bother visiting. You know, again, it wasn't in their interest. What was in their interest is extracting the natural resources that they could for themselves. Luckily for a lot of countries in Africa, a lot of these natural resources weren't fully discovered by the colonial powers or else there would have been a far deadlier fight during the independence era um, for many of these regions. But, you know, the idea that your border can, the, the idea that your border can, can, can shrink and it can grow 
without your control, in which ethnic groups live on borderlands. And in one moment, they could be Cameroonian, another moment, they could be Nigerian, you know? That has created a lot of conflicts. But we, we won't hear about that a lot of times when they talk about potential civil wars or, or, or fights between countries. All we hear is, oh, there goes another African conflict. There goes another fight between African countries. You know, why can't they get their act together? But it's not us who are to blame for this. It's the European powers who came and drew these, drew these borders and created, created countries that were effectively built to topple over. And so the fact that so many of them are still standing, in fact, is, you know, in many ways is, is a success story. And it's not my intention with this book to simply ignore all the challenges that countries might face, but it's to paint a better picture. It's to give context to the circumstances so that the, the, the bigotry that continues that, you know, perhaps, you know, there's something inherently wrong with Africans. The same bigotry that existed in 1884 at the Berlin Conference existed today. You know, that you, you, you see it in, in many Western magazines that keep asking, you know, what's the problem with Africa? Um, the African problem. Um, and when you just do a little bit of research, you start to realize that what you might consider as a problem is actually a success story that they've actually managed to, to get to this point, many countries, against the odds, because as I said, toppling over was built into the foundations of these countries. And yet they, they've not only managed in many cases to, to survive, but also to have huge influences on the rest of the world culturally, politically, um, and in so many different different arenas. Mm, in spite of? In spite of, exactly. I mean, this brings me to what you said about the independence movement sticking or twisting. Can you explain that? Because it seems like it's about whether they endure, continue to endure the, the, the sort of framework that's put in place to destroy, to suppress, to, you know, repress what, can you just talk me through it? Because it's it's a great analogy. Yeah, I mean, almost during the independence era of the 1960s, the African countries through uh, what is now the African Union decided to meet and, and discuss this very question. Um, should we stick or twist? Should we try and redraw our boundaries? Should we try and come up with a new solution for the future? And to their credit, what they decided was that it is better to stick. And the reason it's better to stick is because how do you even begin to partition countries when you have larger nations like Nigeria and South Africa and Kenya, Ghana, and bigger powers, both militarily and politically, who would just work in ways that would likely try and benefit them and themselves? How do you even begin to redraw these boundaries? How, how do you work this out? in a way that is effective for the future. But it's not an easy, it's not an easy discussion in any way. You know, you're, you're still, you have so, you know, so many countries that are incredibly big, that are, that are full of so many different languages, so many different belief systems, so many different opinions on how, on how their country should be governed. But the challenges that they identified in 1960 still remain today. Who does that work? One wrong borderline here and, you know, a smaller nation can get completely eaten up. You know, how do those smaller nations stand up for themselves? And it would have been easier for many of the larger countries to try and eat up the natural resources, but they showed an incredible amount of restraint that the European colonial powers unfortunately did not show. And that again is, you know, really testament to, to the independence leaders at the time who recognized that, you know, this is the 1960s. Nigeria, where I'm from, you know, is a country that is younger than my parents. The rest of the world is moving on in scientifically, technologically, culturally. And so the independence leaders recognized this and decided that, you know, maybe it's time to move on and try and see whether we can make these countries, though they're not of our own making, but let's see how we can make it work for the future. And in many cases, you know, many countries have done an incredible job. In some countries, you know, that has been incredibly challenging. And, you know, they, they've, they've struggled with, with civil wars moving forward. But, you know, it's not something that is, is easy. And our starting point was not something that very much was our own fault.
This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. No Bullshit Leadership, brought to you by Intelligence Squared in partnership with Habas Creative, is back for season three. In this straight-talking podcast, Chris Hurst, global CEO of Habas Creative, is joined each week by a leader from the world of business, sport, politics, or culture. We've got a fantastic season in store with guests including the former White House Director of Communications, Anthony Scaramucci, and the editor of the Financial Times, Rula Kalaf. In the first episode of Season 3, Out Now, Chris was joined by General Sir Chris Deverell, a former four-star general in the British Army, to discuss innovation in the military, leadership during a crisis, and the war in Ukraine. Search No Bullshit Leadership wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. To move into sort of post post independence and and leadership in Africa. I mean, you make the consistent point that Africa isn't home to ungovernable masses and isn't beholden to some curse of moral bankruptcy that keeps churning out you know autocratic despots. But but that the dictatorships on the continent are a result of complex historical processes and power dynamics and fueled mostly by global geopolitics or at least instigated by global geopolitics. And you look at seven case studies. So you look at Somalia during the Cold War era, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, Algeria, Equatorial Guinea, post-independence, Rwanda under Kagame, and Libya under Gaddafi. And it's it's a it's a range. You look at a range of countries and leadership styles. And I just wondered what what did you come away feeling was the strongest common thread? What was the sort of shared reality? The most common thread was that the impact of independence for leaders. Many of them were military men who fought incredibly hard for the independence of their nations. And, you know, they worked against incredible levels of white supremacy, incredible suffering and racist, you know, racist inflictions upon their nations. And they fought incredibly hard and they fought incredibly long. Um, And eventually they won. Um, And what then followed was a period of time where you had these men who were certainly better suited for the battlefield at the top of their countries. And at that point, it was difficult for them to give up power because they felt at the time that, you know, they, they, they'd been the ones to fight for their countries. They'd been the ones to, to, to push the colonial powers out. And so in many cases, that was the initial dynamic that these countries had to, had to deal with, you know, these, these founding fathers who had, had, had defeated incredible odds to, to, to gain their country's freedoms. And so that dynamic plays out in, in many circumstances. And, it, and as, as, as you rightly said, you know, these, these are shared experiences, but the experiences differ. You know, some of, these, some of these men were heavily influenced in the years after by Western powers who tried to, tried to play continue playing ethnic groups off of each other, especially during the Cold War. Some of these military men were influenced internally by ethnic groups who felt like it was their turn to reap some of the rewards that maybe they were not able to reap when colonial powers had favoured other ethnic groups during the colonial era. So that that, that was, you know, that's probably the biggest impact that, that on governance around the continent, but also just the fact that how many different ethnic groups are in each country and the impact that the impact of Britain's divided rule policy, which deliberately found the most corrupt men within the country, armed them, people who were very slick to a bribe, gave them power and influence. And in some, in some of those cases were happier to hand over to those sorts of people. And, you know, in, in many cases, many of those people are still alive today. You know, I use the example that in the book, you know, for Americans, you know, imagine if Alexander Hamilton was still walking around running for office. In many cases, that's, that's what we have in, in a lot of countries. And that, that has an impact. It, you know, it, it's, it's a thing that lingers in the background. 
so but there, there are all these dynamics at play it's not just that you know africans don't have any sense of the importance of democracy or they don't understand they don't understand the importance of 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 community ownership because that's largely what the continent was about before the colonial powers turned up these there were there were there were lots of larger kingdoms but many many people were living in smaller communities and they were they were being governed in smaller communities where there was a lot of democratic say there was there was a lot of there was a lot of sort of community input in how everyone was governed and so that is all there in our in 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 the history of many countries but it's something that was put to the test when the, when the colonialists turned up and broke everything up divided about 10% of all ethnic groups were split up during the colonial era that is an incredibly different dynamic to play out especially in countries that border each other and you know you have people of the same ethnic group living in different countries that in itself creates a certain instability and so a lot of those you know with time a lot of those challenges are being overcome in in some countries and other countries it might take more time but you'll you'll see in a lot of countries as they move further away from the independence era the influence of 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 a, a certain group of people is not as strong anymore and basic understanding between ethnic groups is getting better and better in in certain parts but again a lot of this isn't necessarily unique to africa you know you you see it all around the world you see in the uk you know there you have one school that has produced numbers of british prime ministers you have in the us you know they're still struggling with democracy and their most recent election you had a sitting president challenge the challenge the results the way that was reported is very different to the way that would have been reported if that was a, an african country and so understanding the dynamics at play between you know founding fathers and in western influence is incredibly important to understand governance in across the continent I mean, it says a lot about people and power, it felt. And your approach was quite philosophical. And looking at, for example, Mandela, who served one term, and Mugabe, who served, you know, for decades. But when you look at examples of successful leadership on the continent, whether it's Samia Suluhu Hassan in Tanzania or the Botswana Democratic Party, where do you feel like things went right, if you could sort of put your finger on it? And and how is that sort of something that you feed into when you talk to your nephews and nieces and and they're engaging with that stuff in school in Nigeria? Yeah, I mean, I mean, things go right when, in terms of sort of demographically, things it's easier in countries where you have less ethnic different ethnic groups. In often smaller countries, you know, like Botswana, which is you know largely dominated by one ethnic group, things go right when you have people who are looking towards the future in a way that benefits as many people as possible you have often sometimes it happens you know suddenly as was as we see in Tanzania you know you have people who who take who who take the moment when it comes but often it happens when you get a sort of a, a consensus amongst you know multiple ethnic groups to try and look towards the future rather than constantly rehashing the challenges of the past and again that that will come naturally as we move further away from i think the independence era and and the challenges that that faced you know as 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 i speak to my nephew and nieces i tell them that you know it's it's all about action rather than than promises of the future you know you hear a lot of kind of vague promises of of hope across the continent and you know the average age is is in the 30s and it's like that's not necessarily what matters the most what matters is when people decide to take action that is the most effective towards their people and you see it at the moment with you know someone like Bobby Wine you know probably the first serious millennial political candidate to to get you know relatively close or to build a really strong following you know that there is no guarantees that you know he should he you know get into power that he he's successful but hopefully he'll learn from the mistakes of Museveni who was you know himself once a young exciting power who you know overthrew a, a sort of a stale leadership so the the key thing is just is action is learning from the past and trying to work out as many different ways of healing the the wounds that have come from these quarrels amongst ethnic groups you know but again that that's going to be different with every country 
you know, that their histories are just too specific with each country. Everyone has to try their best to acknowledge the, the histories in their own countries and then and then move on. And I think those who have managed to sort of really understand and acknowledge their history are those who have been able to to look to the future and to to try and start creating a path that is that is effective. I mean, I could go on, but I'm going to share the stage and read out some of these questions. And if we have time at the end, maybe I can pick up on a couple more questions. But there is a question from Sarah. What role could the diaspora play in, in deconstructing these stereotypes? I think it's, I think they can play a huge role in the diaspora, certainly. I think it's incredibly important whether you are in the, you know, you're a journalist or you're in the charity industry or you're, you know, writing books, making films to try and use your position to ensure that the fullness of your own personal experience is represented where you can, but also to coordinate with people, you know, I usually see but back home and to, to work with people on the ground to help build the bridges between you and your own nations to try and say that, how can we, if you are in that position to better tell the stories of those who are, who are working on the ground, you know, even, you know, I'm someone, my, my family live in Nigeria. I live in, I live in London. I'm back in Nigeria a lot. My experiences of being Nigerian is different to those who are on the ground there in, in across the country every single day. And I think that there's a huge role that I can play and I'm trying to play in trying to sort of tell the story of, of, of Nigeria and, and of our history and the history of West Africa and, and, and as many different histories as I can, you know, through trying to speak and give a voice to those on the ground where they want that sort of where they want that sort of coordination trying to ensure that you're best representing the genuine views of those on the ground um, in your own country so i think that people in diaspora can play a huge role in every single i don't think there's a single industry that isn't impacted by the negative stereotypes of africa you know whether it's in tech or it's in or in, or in business or finance you know or politics Every single person is in an industry where they look upon Africans and Africa in a very specific way. Um, and I think people out in the diaspora, you know, can play a really, really important role in telling that story. But I think they should, you know, always ensure that, you know, where you can, you're working in coordination with people on the ground to do that. Mm -hmm. 100%. Thank you. Another question is, you work in a media organisation. How do you think the media can reinforce or break down stereotypes? Is the British media still racist towards Africans? Yeah, I mean, I think the media probably played the, the biggest role in reinforcing stereotypes and have a great opportunity to break them down. You know, in the book, I, I talk about, I talk about uh, popular culture um, and the charity campaigns that continue to, to, to plague the continent. You know, the idea that Africans are helpless and they can't help themselves and and the imagery that we use consistently of of you know starving destitute Africans who who don't have a voice who can't speak um, images that are meant to shock people into into donating rather than giving people the context that they need to understand a crisis and then from there to try and then help where appropriate you know the it's it's in the images that populate books and films and, and in, in, in the words pressed into, into books that, that we, we understand different worlds. And unfortunately for Africa, you know, pretty much as, as, as Chimamanda Ndichie sort of spoke about so well, there is this constant single story of, of, of Africa and Africans um, that keeps getting told, that keeps, that keeps being repeated. And I think that, you know, the media does, the, the, you know, can or has done, you know, probably the most most damage in that regard. And so I think it's, in, it's incredibly incumbent on, on journalists and, and, and authors and, 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 and poets and photographers um, to ensure that there is far more variation in, in the stories we tell and how we tell these stories, but always to ensure that we bring context to the table. We explain the full crisis and we give people that, that time and space to tell their own stories where possible. And I think that if, you know, hopefully through this book, if it reaches as many people as possible in the media, we can start rethinking, you know, what is necessary. You know, it, if, if there are unfolding crises and there are many different ways of telling the story, you know, it's important to show the human impact of, 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 of a crisis. 
you know, you have to ask yourself, is this necessary? You know, who is who who does this image serve? Does it serve me? You know, does it serve the notion that, you know, oh, what we need here is a quick fix, or does it serve the long term? You know, and I think that that's something that that is incredibly that's incredibly important to to remember. Yeah, and dignity, right? Absolutely. And then people being able to keep their dignity even in times of, of strife yeah, and suffering. You know, it's so important that, that we see people as people. You know, one thing that is that we've we've heard time and time again recently during the Ukraine Russia crisis is there have been a number of people who've 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 come out to try and explain somehow that oh this particular migrant crisis is different from the crises that we see in you know in Africa and the Middle East implying that you know Africans and people in the Middle East are used to suffering you know and nobody in the world is used to suffering and that's the consequences of of treating people without dignity and treating them like they're not really humans that they're just you know people who are, who were who are born to suffer you know they're just stock images you know you lose the humanity and and rightly so you know the humanity that we're rightly showing to Ukrainians who are fleeing a crisis right now we need to remember that humanity when you know similar when similar incidents happen around the world you know it's important that we see these people for who they are and by showcasing and and putting dignity at the front of of everything we do that helps people to to connect to other people as human beings and on that i mean this goes straight to a question from tessa on um speaking about dehumanization she asks if you can speak a bit more about the George Floyd murder and the NSARS movement in Nigeria and how are young people in movements like this impacting African countries? The NSARS movement I'll start with, you know, it was an incredible moment for Nigeria. It was what was incredibly important about that movement for me is that they had learned a lot of the lessons of the past. They had decided to decentralize power within the movement. There was no one leader. You know, people brought to the table what they could. It, it wasn't about one figure saying that they're going to save the country from the government. You know, it was about saying, you know, okay, look, what, 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 what can you offer? Okay, you bring that. You know, what can you offer? Okay, you bring that. Let's put the lives and the humanity of those who were suffering. Let's make sure that they're the ones who are at the forefront, not individual, not, you know, people trying to fight for power. And I think that that was such an incredible moment. And I think, you know, that was something similar that we saw during the during the George Floyd protests. You know, this this decentralizing of power, this willingness for people to find or for young people to to believe that they had a specific voice and they had specific skills that could be brought that could be brought to the movement in their own individual industries. And that was really, really key. You know, and that's where, you know, we saw so many different industries trying to respond to the protests. And so I think that looking forward, I think that that's something that's going to be really key. By doing that, it's harder to break down into ethnic groups. You know, you break down into individual people with individual skill sets that can offer something to, 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 to try and change the future. And I think that's something that was, uh, you know, it both at the NSARS movement and with the George Floyd movement were really key in ensuring that there was real, you know, global impact from both movements. Another question is from Sarah about the curriculum in the UK. How important do you think it is to decolonize the curriculum in the UK? Do you think this is already happening? It's not happening quick enough, but it's essential. You know, this book is not just about African history. This is British history. This is about who Britain is today and who Britain can be in the future. The, the Commonwealth and, and the empire and the, the contributions of people from you know, across the empire I've had on British culture today is is huge. And by recognizing that, you know, it, it'll become a lot harder to to make the same mistakes in the in the future. You know, one example I'll give uh, recently on the royal visit to, to Jamaica, you know, I think that, you know, well, as we saw, you know, the royal family received huge pushback from Jamaicans. And I think that that could have gone very differently. You know, I think the path they chose was the traditional path of, oh, we can just go there and, and smile and wave and and charm the local population and, and, and bang some drums in Bob Marley's house and and everyone will be happy. But instead, the Jamaican people said, we don't have time for that. That's not what interests us right now. What interests us is our future and, and who we are as a people and how we're governed in the future. And I think that was an opportunity for 
the royal family, the British government to learn from the past and to face it head on and say, look, here, here are the mistakes. It's more than just acknowledging it in a speech. It's saying, it's acknowledging it through action to say, okay, look, here is the mistakes we've made in the past. We're not just gonna come here and try and, and charm you and wave and smile. We'll listen to you. You tell us how you see your future. And if there's anything that we can do to contribute to that, to, to help, we can do that. If you, if your message is, don't worry, we'll take it from here, we'll do that too. And in the future, like we do with other countries, we, we can build a new relationship. That would have shown that they had learned from the mistakes of the past, but instead they focused on, you know, a lot of the same imagery. Sometimes literally, you know, they, they literally went out of their way to replicate, I believe, you know, a 1970s image of, of the Queen and Prince Philip uh, standing at the back of, of a Range Rover, an open top Range Rover. You know, stuff like that shows that we're still not, we still don't understand the impact that uh, colonization had. Um, and I think it's so important that, that, you know, by recognizing, if when we do recognize that, then that will change with action. And I think that's why it's so important that this is taught in schools. So the next generation genuinely understand what empire was all about. Mm -hmm. There's, um, I'm going to take one more question from the audience and then just ask you sort of a more look ahead forward, forward reaching question. So Redzi Bernard uh, asks, are there people who are doing a great job of changing perceptions, authors, playwrights, filmmakers, artists, etc.? Is there anyone you would recommend? Yeah, I mean, I think we have such an incredibly rich cultural influence. Um, and I would, I would, my, my first, you know, my first thought goes to sort of the Afrobeat artists personally, you know, they are doing such an incredible job in bringing cultures to the world, representing their cultures and their own accents, in telling the stories of, of their presence to the rest of the world and doing it in a way that doesn't try to, that doesn't try to, to cater towards the rest of the world, but doing it in a way that, that makes sense to them and their people and trusting that others will understand because, you know, a lot of these, these feelings and emotions are universal. You know, you look at sort of, you go through writers like Chimando Adichie, and you look at kind of Nollywood and the impact that's had. There are lots of, you know, incredible journalists, uh, lots of great literary magazines on the continent, like The Republic, and, you know, others who are, who are really, really pushing, who are really pushing boundaries. You know, I, I get so excited when I see this in so many different avenues, whether it's food and music and, and art and, and fashion. I think that there's, there's so much going on. There are lots of really great youth-led activism movements, especially, you know, across Central Africa that I think, you know, there, there are really lots of really great opportunities to, to experience a lot of people telling their own stories in their own languages, in their own accents. Mm -hmm. And I mean, what, what do you, what is the main message you would want readers to take away from the book? And what do you hope for the future of awareness around the continent, sort of the baseline of awareness that you would hope people can have moving forward? My main message is that, is that Africa's a place that can be anything and everything. It is a place of where there are people doing incredibly wonderful things every day, and there are people who are doing incredibly terrible things every day, and everything that exists in between. It is me, it's my family, it is our culture, it is our community, and there are so many, so many similar examples of that throughout the region. And what I want people to understand is that, you know, Africa is a place that, like anywhere else, can be anything. It's not limited to a single story. It's a multitude of stories. It's a multitude of experience. It's a multitude of identities. And I hope that by understanding the context behind our history and our presence and the parts of our history and our presence that are shared, that you better get to appreciate those individual identities and how special and wonderful they can be and how they can contribute to the future. And, and looking to the future, I, I just, I really believe that this is a really great opportunity for individual countries to, if respected, to really make an incredible mark across the world culturally and in, you know, really, really special ways. And so I really just hope that, you know, when people, when people read this book, they feel a certain connection with countries that they may never have visited, cultures they may never have visited, experiences, challenges, joys, food, they start to realize that a lot of the traditions that they enjoy today came from African countries and they start to appreciate that and understand that. And, you know, as we discussed earlier, understanding that helps build a connection, helps build 
an appreciation for the humanity of other people. And we stop seeing Africa as a vast swaths of arid red soil where nothing but misery grows and a place that's only good for either handouts or safari, but a place of richness, of experience, of people and of a future that can that can be anything. And I you know, really, really hope that that, that really is the main takeaway of the book. Mm. And one, one last question for sort of the young writers listening to this. Yeah. How did you feel when you sort of put that last full stop on the last page and you were like, I'm done? <laughs> what, was, what, what was going through your head? What were you feeling? It was, I, I mean, I, I did it and I sort of just got up and just like, I literally just went to go lie down for like 10 minutes. <laughs> just it rest. Just, it, was, it was, I just had a little lie down, a little prayer. And it was just an, an incredible moment of relief and joy. You know, I say to writers, you know, it's also a very lonely experience writing and writing is hard. And, you know, often, you know, writing is depicted as something that's just, you see it in films where, you know, someone will just sit in their computer and just, you know, crack it out. But it's, it's, there are ups, there are downs, there are, you know, it's, it's, it's communicating. It's, it can also be joyful, but it, you know, but it's hard. And, and so once you kind of accept that and appreciate that you're not on your own, I would say to any young writer, you know, if you're finding it difficult, there's no writer that isn't finding it difficult. Um, but as long as it, as long as you're motivated to carry on and inspired by your, your, your topic, then you can't go wrong. And I was certainly motivated and inspired to write this book. Amazing. Congratulations. I'm so happy you get to now enjoy the fruits of your labor and kind of, you know, take it on tour, but just amazing. I really recommend everyone read this, buy it for a friend you know, take it on holiday. It's, it's an incredible book. And honestly, thank you for writing it. Thank you to the audience for joining us. Um, thank you to whoever's listening to this on the podcast. It was so nice to chat with you, Dippo. I learned so much from reading the book and just hearing you expand and elaborate and, and really drive the point home that, you know, our experiences are shared. They are not the same. And we will continue to learn when we understand each other for our individual histories and our individual experiences and respecting that is, is a part of life, you know, and a part yeah. of the beauty of it all. Thank you guys. Mm-hmm.